You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Hear the word of God. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Well, last time we were together, we considered Paul's defense before the angry Jewish mob. You remember how he bore witness to the amazing grace of God in Jesus Christ? And his three themes were continuity, the same God in the Old Testament as in the New, causality, God taking the initiative in our salvation, and universality, the gospel is to all people in all nations. In other words, he told them who God is and what he had done and for whom he had done it. And it showed that a true Jew can embrace Christ in good conscience. His commission to proclaim Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. And when the Jews heard that Paul was sent to the Gentiles, the lid was blown off the mob. The multitude was incensed. They ferociously were indignant. And the crowd was boiling mad. And they could not bear the thought of Gentiles sharing in the Abrahamic promise. Their hatred of the gospel was expressed violently as they sought to silence the Apostle Paul. And of course, this was another illustration of the enmity that was predicted in Genesis 3.15. Sinful people cannot bear the truth, so they seek to silence it. And the Jewish mob screamed, and they stomped, and they practically pulled their hair out in anger. And if it had not been for the tribune, Paul would have been torn to pieces. So Claudius Lysias, that was the tribune's name, took him safely into the barracks. And Paul was bound, and he was about to be flogged, which was the typical method of interrogation. The tribune still had no idea what Paul had done to stir up the crowd so violently. Frustrated, the Roman soldier resorted to the ordinary Roman military procedure. 
Standard torture was the quickest way to find out information. And this would have been legal had Paul been a slave or a local native. It was cruel. It was ghastly. The spiked whips would rip through human flesh. Indeed, so severe was this procedure that sometimes, I might even add, oftentimes the victims died as a result. But Claudius Lysias was impatient to keep the peace and to restore order, so he was very ready to use it. It was, in fact, the most efficient and effective method of finding things out. And yet the Apostle Paul was not about to endure torture unnecessarily. And as they stretched him out for the flogging, he asked one simple question. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And humanly speaking, that question was what delivered him and maybe even saved his life. Paul was a Roman citizen, and citizens, as you know, were exempt from such torture. Roman law prohibited the flogging of citizens without cause, without a trial. There had been no investigation to speak of, no condemnation, no sentence passed. And if the magistrate had done this, then he himself would have been liable to severe punishment. That's why he was so afraid. Because the Romans, with all their faults, they prized their freedom. They prized the privileges of citizenship. For example, in one of his orations, the great Cicero extolled the privileges in this way, and I quote, O liberty, I love thy charming name, and these are laws how admirable. It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen, but an unpardonable one to beat him. Paul was born a Roman citizen. His father apparently was a citizen before him, and that was due, some think, because of some military exploit on behalf of the emperor. So Paul the apostle was no inconsiderable citizen. He was an important Roman. And all this meant that tortures, the typical torture, tortures could not be employed with him. And the tribune, I can imagine, shuddered to think how close he came to committing a serious crime. Yes, he had unjustly bound Paul, but it would not be held against him. He had not flogged him, thankfully. And for that, the tribune himself would be spared. And this was not the first time that Paul's citizenship played an important role, as you can remember. Do you recall in Philippi, when the magistrates wanted to release him from prison secretly? Remember what he said? They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. So his citizenship served as a title of nobility and, to a degree, a shield of defense. And there are only two observations that I would like us to make. First of all, I think we should realize that it's both right and reasonable to make use of lawful means. Now, you might think that's too basic to mention, but many deny that principle. It's right and reasonable to make use of lawful means. 
The text implies that what Paul did was both right and reasonable. To preserve his life and his liberty, he made good and rational use of a lawful mean. In other words, it was both lawful and wise to capitalize on his citizenship. He enjoyed certain privileges as a Roman citizen, which included his safety. So he merely claimed that to which he as a Roman citizen was entitled. Indeed, we are not to defraud ourselves of the due use and comfort of that estate which God has given to us. He's given it to us freely and generously. And there are some people who misinterpret the teaching of the Lord Jesus in this regard. This is what our Lord said. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Well, what is Jesus doing there? Should Paul have done what he did? Well, Christ is not demanding, I don't believe, passive non-resistance in every situation. He's not saying that you as a Christian must endure torture under all circumstances. Some people use Jesus' words to refuse military service or to condemn public justice or to reject defending one's life and loved ones when necessary. In other words, they would say, well, Paul should have trusted in Jesus and let them shred his own back. But in expounding the law, Jesus was not doing something like that, but he was simply correcting a wrong opinion and practice of the Jewish people. One of those among the Jews was what we call a revengeful spirit. A revengeful spirit. We are not to be vigilantes. We're not to take public justice into our own hands. Public justice is delegated to the civil authorities who are called upon by God to enforce the law. This is what Paul says in Romans 13. The magistrate is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer public justice. And Jesus chose an extreme case to illustrate the principle. Somebody walks up to you and slaps you in the face. It's painful. It's an insult. Don't seek revenge. Don't wield the sword. Don't take public justice into your own hands. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So instead of a proud, revengeful disposition, it would be better in many cases to endure the grossest insult and a personal injury. Both resistance and punishment can be used if properly regulated. That's what Jesus is teaching. And to resist or to punish out of passion or revenge would be sinful. And let's face it, these are sins to which you and I are prone. A revengeful spirit, right? Vindictive, bitter, 
and we have to guard against it. But the lawful resistance and public justice are part of God's government of the world. And Christ's teaching does not negate self-defense or the necessity or the necessitate passivity in every circumstance. You are not to be a doormat for the world to mistreat in any way it feels. You may and you ought to use lawful measures to preserve and promote life. That's what the sixth commandment commands. Because life is an extremely valuable blessing of which all people partake, and to take it away unjustly is wicked and deserving of a severe penalty. Public justice. It's biblical. And the Apostle Paul defended himself by relying upon his Roman citizenship, and there was no reason for him to suffer when suffering was not his only option. Nothing in the gospel was at stake. No truth was on the scaffold. The tribune was simply impatient. He was frustrated. He was not acting reasonably. And so Paul prevented the unnecessary and unjustified loss of his own life. Now, do you think this has all sorts of applications for our daily lives? Medicines that we take, are they lawful? Exercises that we perform, self-defense that we might employ, safety measures that we adopt. In so many areas of Christian life, we may and ought to do what is lawful and wise. And true, these otherwise good things can be abused and used unlawfully. But it's not wrong to use from day to day lawful means lawfully especially when we have all of these technological advances that God has permitted. And as we try to deal with sickness and disease, hunger and war, as well as ordinary life, we can use them responsibly. And insofar as something is lawful and we deem it wise, let's use it. Two questions. Is it lawful? Is it wise? If you can answer yes to both, use it. Because everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. You know, there are many false teachers, as we read earlier, who forbid what God has provided and allowed to the creature. Forbid marriage, foods that are good for the body, and we need not reject but may enjoy the good gifts he's given. But remember, for them to be good, we should seek his blessing. So that's observation number one, the material observation. But there's another one. I want us to consider, secondly, the parallel between Paul's experience and our judgment. This was the punishment that Paul was about to receive, flogging, an awful punishment. They take sharp bones and weave them into the whip so that it would lacerate the back. And it was one of the worst penalties meted out by the Roman soldiers. And we have to admit that it was cruel and sadistic. The best one could hope for was being disfigured for the rest of his life. And perhaps it was a feature of providence designed to foreshadow the misery of hell. 
In fact, all the miseries in this life are effects of sin and foreshadowings of the agonies of endless suffering. We're taught that unbelieving sinners suffer in both soul and body. And here was a torture that in some respects reminds us of bodily suffering. The pain of torn flesh, the loss of shed blood, perhaps even the breaking of bones. These were reminders of the fact that sinners, as sinners, we deserve punishment. All the miseries of this life are mere foreshadowings of future punishment. And of course, Paul didn't deserve his beatings for the reason that they were given. But as a sinner, living in a cursed world, that was a sinner's due. Scripture emphasizes the fact that God is infinitely and absolutely holy. Exodus 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Hannah, when she prayed, she said, there is no one holy like the Lord. Those are only two examples to show us that God is absolutely pure and undefiled and untainted by the least speck of sin, and he is antagonistic to sin in all of its forms. Utterly opposed to it. And therefore he tells us in no uncertain terms, I will by no means clear the guilty. Dear friends, I think few things are revealed in Scripture with more certainty than this fact, that God will punish sin. In all of its forms, in all of its expressions, in all of its agents, and hence the Bible identifies you and I as being by nature children of wrath, objects of wrath. And it wasn't as if somehow we became children of wrath at some point in time, but rather you and I were born in that condition and our lives are just lived out in accord with it. Children of wrath. Every one of us is depraved. No exceptions. We're wicked at the core. And we're prone to rebellion. I feel it. You feel it. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't change the heart, the sinner goes from bad to worse. It's never the other way around. And that's why Jesus Christ suffered so intensely. That's why he died on the cross. He was enduring the pain and the shame and the curse that we so richly deserve. That's the first part of it. That flogging foreshadowed the miseries of hell. But the second parallel between Paul's experience and our judgment is this. He enjoyed the privilege of being protected as a citizen of the Roman state. He was able to rely upon his citizenship and its privilege to escape that punishment. It's a principle of government that the state safeguards its citizens, and he was entitled to the rights and privileges that Rome afforded its citizens. Well, in the same way, believers are entitled to the rights and privileges afforded by the Messianic kingdom. The Christian stands in relationship to the kingdom of, of God as Paul stood in relationship to the Roman Empire. 
As he was a member of the empire, so we are members of heaven. As he benefited from the power of government, so we benefit from the power of God. As he was protected by the state, so we are protected by the king. And of course, as a believer, Paul also enjoyed the blessings of heaven. But the unbeliever is a citizen of this world only, not of the world to come. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So every true Christian, if you are a sincere believer, you are a blood-bought citizen of the world to come. And this present world is not your home. It is merely a temporary sojourn. You're just stopping over. For a few short years, you and I live on this earth waiting to be called or taken home. And just as the Tribune's citizenship was purchased, so our citizenship in heaven was bought with blood. And let me ask you this, how lofty must be that privilege that demands the payment of God's own blood? The privilege of heaven and eternal life and an everlasting inheritance is absolutely priceless. Paul's citizenship shielded him from punishment and our citizenship shields us from judgment. Isn't that a wonderful thing? His standing with regard to Rome made all the difference in the world to those soldiers. They fell back. And our standing with regard to God will make all the difference at the final day. All the Roman citizens were entitled to the state security and all the Christians are entitled to the heavenly security. We deserve punishment and our sins are worthy of the penalty of hell fire, but as blood-bought, spirit-renewed citizens, we are protected. What a wonderful thing. Peter says we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation so that he or she who trusts in this Jesus will be delivered from the wrath to come. Think of that. Delivered from the wrath to come. And according to Jude, as we sing so often, God is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So there you have it, the spiritual parallel between Paul's experience and our judgment. But you know something to the eye of sight. It appears that Christians are the least guarded of all, doesn't it? We prayed for souls being persecuted in Burkina Faso this morning, a country in Western Africa. Churches bombed. People killed routinely for their faith. The persecution of believers has been evident in every generation upon earth. And yet the word of God tells us that the, there's no people better protected than Christians. Psalm 125, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. All true Christians, therefore, are enclosed in and protected by the everlasting arms of power and love. It doesn't seem that way to the eyes of sight. But like Job, we're told that we're hemmed in by a God-ordained hedge on every side. And by his own admission, the devil could not break through the hedge around Job. Clearly, then, he cannot break through the hedge that is around you and me. 
Unless God permits it for his own purpose, Satan cannot touch you. But if he does, we know that it was permitted by a father who loves you. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And we have to recognize that that kind of special divine protection is not available to the unbeliever. It's tragic and it's sad, but it's true. God withdraws that kind of protection from those who are presumptuous and unbelieving and impenitent. This is what we're told in Psalm 27. The arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. And there have been many accounts of special protection throughout history. Let me give you one example. Many of you have heard of David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the American Indian. One night, some Indians crept toward David Brainerd's tent with tomahawks in hand. And as they cautiously peered under the flap of his tent, they abandoned their plan to kill him because that was their plan. There in the center of the tent, this man, David Brainerd, was on his knees. And as he prayed, and as they watched, a rattlesnake crossed his feet and paused in position to strike. However, the rattlesnake soon lowered its head again and glided out of the tent. And it was a long time later when David Brainerd found out why the Indians at the village received him with such high honor. <laughs> he had half expected to be killed, but they welcomed him. And the reason for their change of heart was the report their friends gave of the marvelous thing they had seen. They looked upon him as a messenger from the Great Spirit because of the amazing deliverance of his life. In due time, they came to know David Brainerd as he really was an ambassador of the true and living God. But you can see an example of God's protection on his people according to his will. And every true believer and sincere worshiper enjoys the same degree of care. In light of this, I think it's important for us to be conscious of the deceit of false confidence. Because the only true security, the only safe place in this entire world is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our ultimate protection cannot be found in anything other than him. We can't make anything our confidence that will prove false in the end. No one should trust in idols or generals or presidents or riches or superior intellect. On the great day of wrath, let me ask you, what good will those things do? On that great day of wrath, nothing but Christ will shield you and I from divine fury. There are things like military strength or trained intelligence that can help in this life. We can use them as means of defense, but we cannot make them the source of our confidence. God provides strength and intelligence, wealth and position for our good, but these cannot serve our welfare unless God blesses them. It was not superior military strength that delivered David from Goliath. 
He was a boy, a young teenager, and he came in the name of the Lord of hosts, and that's how he defeated the giant. We confess that not a hair can fall from our heads apart from the will of our Heavenly Father, and apart from Him, nothing in this present world can protect us, and with Him, nothing in this present world can harm us. Let me just tell you one more story before I close. I mentioned Corey Ten Boom in Sunday school. Well, Corey Ten Boom, she was the Dutch woman whose family hid the Jews during World War II in the persecution of the Germans. Corey Ten Boom tells of one night during the German invasion when she was too restless to sleep. Hearing her sister Betsy in the kitchen downstairs, Corey went down for a cup of tea. After the noise of warplanes and artillery subsided, she went back up to her room. When she reached out to pat her pillow, she felt something sharp cutting her hand. It turned out it was a jagged piece of metal 10 inches long. Racing downstairs with the shrapnel in her hand, Corey said to her sister, Betsy, if I hadn't heard you in the kitchen. And to this, her sister replied, don't say it, Corey. There are no ifs in God's world. The center of his will is our safety. And it's fitting, I believe, that the title of her book is The Hiding Place because Corey found her hiding place to be God himself. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord, says the psalmist. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. You and I have no reason to fear. If Jesus is our Savior and Lord, we have no reason to fear. Thank God for him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you provide us with divine protection, that you do work all things together for good to those whom you've called, who love you. Sometimes we're confused by the way you do this, but we trust you. And we ask that you'll help us to grow in our understanding of your goodness and your fatherly care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.